Well, good evening. Yes. You know, um, my name is Steve Larson, by the way. Uh, Rob and I have been good friends. And, uh, and so I texted him and said, well, I'm going to be stuck in the U.S. for three months. And uh, please let me speak. And so he did. So here I am. I'm shameless when it comes to begging to be able to teach. So uh, uh, forgive me for that because I know you're missing Rob being here. But uh, I hope... Uh, Tonight will be a blessing to you as well. Um, just a note, uh, some of you have been wondering about how the heart is doing. It's actually doing much better. Uh, I'm doing my cardio rehab three days a week. So uh, in, in, uh, uh, in about three months, I should have guns like this, and I should have a heart that's strong and powerful. I'll be able to get back to Nepal. Uh, so that's, uh, God is really faithful. He's doing great things, and... Uh, I'm praising him. When Rob asked me to share, uh, there's something that has been on my mind uh, because of my travels to Nepal. When I I go to Nepal, one of the things, the first uh, thing I teach a new group of pastors, because I'll do what I do, just so you know, what I do in Nepal is I do a three-year school that is preparing them for the ministry because these pastors in these remote villages that have no electricity, no cell service, no running water, I mean, it is, they live like they did a long time ago. I mean, you see the the women at the well coming to gather and catch up with each other and fill their pots with water, take it back to their homes. I mean, it's, it's really quite amazing. But when I go there, one of the foundational classes I love to teach is Genesis 1, 2, and 3 which incidentally is the most attacked section of Scripture in the entire Bible. Do you know that? There is no part of God's Word that is attacked more viciously than Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. And I think the reason for that, it is so foundational that if you understand those three chapters, you are really set up to understand the story of God. And one of the things that comes out of this study of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is, number one, uh, what evolution teaches is not true. We are not an accident. We are created by a God who designed us for a very specific purpose. And Genesis 2 makes that purpose so clear. It teaches us in the story that, number one, our purpose for creation is to walk in an intimate relationship of friendship and love with the God who created us. That's number one. And number two, we were created to walk in intimacy with others, with people. So God's desire for you and for me is that we love him, greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? And the second commandment is very like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so all through the scriptures, you see this principle emphasized time and time again. And one thing that I want to share with you that sometimes we don't think about is if you want to know how you're doing in your relationship with God, check your relationships with other people. Because that is the clearest indication of how you're doing with God is how you're doing not only with the people you like and who treat you well, but the people you don't like and who treat you badly. All right? Yeah. We don't like that part. 
So how are you doing with that neighbor who drives you crazy and lets his tree grow over your fence and all of the different things that people do? Or that, that person who just seems to be committed to annoying you for the rest of your life. And what's tragic is you're probably married to him or her. So, you know, we have all of these things going on where, where we struggle in our relationships with people. And tonight I want to share with you a passage, passage from God's word. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. This is where we're going to be tonight. Where Peter is going to be, give us a strong challenge. You guys... How we live with each other is really important with God. And what's interesting is in the verse before he's emphasized that to husbands. Remember he said, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And then he puts his little tagline at the end, that your prayers may not be hindered. So you can call this a piece of information. I call it a threat. All right? It's a threat from God. Men, if you don't do this, I'm going to hinder the answers to your prayer request. And this is a, a pattern that we're going to see in this scripture. So let's, uh, let's begin by reading this scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. To sum up, Peter says, I'm, Peter says, I'm getting to the end of my thoughts. And of course, there's two more chapters left. He's like a classic preacher who says, finally, and he goes for another 45 minutes. So he says, to sum up, let all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Verse 10, for the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And you know scripture, whenever any the Lord's eyes are toward somebody, that's looking on them with blessing in mind. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. All right, so let's go to this. We want to take, take through this as a uh, kind of a verse-by-verse uh, verse looking at this. But I want to point out verse 10 to you, and, and this is so cool. Verse 10 opens up, the one who desires life to love and to see good days. Question, would you like that? Would you like, would you like to live to love, so Peter is saying, the people who want love to be a core component of their life. And then would you like to see good days? Not easy days, by the way, but good days. And that really is the theme of what we're going to be looking at tonight, is we want to, we want to find out how do we live in a way that is going to give us life, It's going to provide us with love, and it's going to allow us to see good days. Now, there's a question we need to ask and answer, because one of the dangers we get to is we begin to wonder, hey, is God's blessing, are God's blessings earned? 
In other words, do I have to be really good in order for God to bless me? The answer is clearly no. Um, That's the way the Old Testament was. By the way, if you read Deuteronomy, you'll see very clearly God said, if you do good, I'll bless you. If you do evil, I'll curse you. And, And this, by the way, the book of Deuteronomy is really where the prosperity gospel comes from. I don't know if you've heard of the prosperity gospel, but it's, it's the view that if you're a godly person, you're going to be rich, you're going to be healthy, and everything's going to go well for you. That is a false teaching based on a misunderstanding of Deuteronomy that it was for the nation of Israel. It was God's law for Israel. But we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We're under the New Covenant, which is a covenant of grace. So here's the thing I need you to understand. God's blessings are not earned, but... We can either draw close to the blessings of God or we can walk away from them. Okay, that's our choice. And let me just uh, share with you James chapter 4, verse 6. Here it is. It says, but he gives a greater grace. But God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And let me explain this for a minute. Let's say I had two sons. I do have two sons, but I'm the, what I'm going to describe are not my two sons. But one son was just loved to be a part of the family, and we had great relationships, and we'd go out and do things together, and we enjoyed each other's love. And the second son didn't want to have anything to do with me. He just wanted to, uh, you know, live his own life. He he didn't like being a part of the family, and he just pushed away every opportunity I I had to be a part of his life. Now, do you think I will love both sons? Absolutely true. I've, I've, I've dealt with a number of parents who have had wayward children, and you know what? They love their children, even as their children are being unkind and mean and hurtful to them. They love their children. But which son will enjoy that love? See, it's not that I've stopped loving the wayward son. It's that he has pushed away and said, I don't want to experience your love. And this is what pride does in our lives. It's, it's like holding up our hand to God and saying, nope, I don't want your grace. I don't want your power. I don't want your joy. I don't want the fullness of your life. I want to do it myself. And so tonight we're going to talk about Two life patterns. One is where I'm living by my own way, which is pride and disobedience to God. And basically what I'm going to go through and experience is the life of a non-believer, even though I'm a child of God, because I'm holding back God's blessing from my life. And the other person is opening up to God's blessing. So let's look at what pride looks like. And I just want to share with you some of the, the statements of pride. It's The whole idea, I want to make my own decisions. I want to depend on my own resources. In other words, if I I need money, I don't want to ask God for that money. I don't want to be patient and wait for God. I want to go out and get a loan. Okay, that's what we do in this society. I want to rely on my own wisdom. I want to make my own choices. I want to take care of myself. I want to do it myself. I want to be my own God. In other words, I want to be God of my own life. And most importantly, I want the credit. You ever noticed athletes when they've won a tournament, what they say so often, they say, I never stopped believing in myself. 
who's God of their life. Whoever you believe in, that's, that's your God. And so these are statements of pride. And what happens is we have to come to the, back to the fundamental question. Do you want God's blessing in your life? Or do you want to try to create your own blessing? And that's the question of tonight. So now let's go to verse 8. Peter in verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, to sum up. In other words, I've been talking a lot about a lot of different things. We've been going through a whole bunch of stuff. But I want to draw it all together for you. And he gives five words to describe the kind of person that is going to be a receiver of God's blessing. And this grows out. These five words uh, and the point that they are re- making us receivers of God's wisdom goes all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. So he's giving us a command about purity, but he's going to tell us why now. He says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing they slander you as evildoers. By the way, are we being slandered as evildoers right now? Do you know how Christians are called haters now? We're called bigots. We're called racists. We're called homophobes. We're called every name under the sun. How should we respond to that? By casting anger back to them. Well, you guys are worse. Or all, you know, you guys are really wicked. Or No. He says, I want you to keep your behavior excellent among these people. Now look at this. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, when Jesus Christ comes again, these folks will be without any excuse because God will say, did you see how my children behaved with you? Yeah. Did they get angry with you? Well, no, they didn't. Did they, did they curse you when you cursed them? No, I can't believe that I, they didn't do that. And I never understood why. And, and their mouths will be stopped. In other words, when Christians live like Christians, they take away the right of the world to mock God. When Christians behave like non-Christians, they give people a legitimate reason to curse God. So you can either live in a way that is going to cause people to glorify God and hopefully they'll start glorifying God before the day of visitation, before Jesus comes back. And they'll actually become Christians because of your good deeds. But everything from 1 Peter 2.11 to where we are right now is about living in such a way that brings honor to God among people who don't know him. Okay, you with me on that? All right, so let's look at these five words. It's pretty cool. The first word is harmonious. So Peter says, I want you to be harmonious with each other. Now, now think of harmony in music. When people are singing in harmony, do they sing the same note? No. That, that's unison. When they sing in harmony, they're singing different notes, but they're singing together I want to help you understand something about unity unity is not when we all think alike unity is when we think together 
In other words, we don't have to agree on every little detail of everything we talk about. But we do have to think and act and speak as if we're all part of the same team. So harmonious means to be of one mind. And what that means is we're going to say on the big stuff, hey, we need to agree. Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? (laughs) Absolutely. Can we have a lot of discussion about that? Not really. Not really. Did Jesus die for my sins? Yes. Well, can I be a part of your church if I don't want to believe that? No, I don't think so. You can, you can attend, but you're not going to be really a part of us because you are not with us on the fundamentals of who we are. But when it comes to, well, should I wear shorts to church, which, of course, is a, one of the seven deadly sins. So those of you in shorts, I hope you'll repent because I wanted to wear shorts and I thought, ah, I'm speaking, I shouldn't do that. So since I have to wear long pants, everybody should have to wear long pants. That's what I believe. So things like that. Are we going to take those things and blow them up into big issues that actually divide us? That's not being harmonious. That's not being on the same team. That's, that's like taking things like musical style and saying, well, I'm going to leave this church because I don't like the kind of music they play. Or I'm going to leave this church because I don't like the, uh, the way the pastor said something last week. And, and that's not harmonious. Harmonious literally means one soul. That we're all on the same page. We're not thinking exactly the same thing, but we're moving together. So that's harmonious. The second thing, Sympathetic. Sympathetic isn't, oh, that's too bad. Sympathetic is when you actually feel with the person. You weep with those who weep, and you rejoice with those who rejoice. I don't like to be sympathetic. I'll be honest with you. In my flesh, I don't like to be sympathetic. I'd rather say, oh, be warmed and be filled. Sorry you're feeling bad. But the idea of actually entering into their world and feeling what they're feeling and going through with them what they're going through, that's against my selfish nature. But Peter says, hey, do you want the kind of life that is going to have a supernatural ring to it? Then let's be sympathetic with each other. When a person is going through that, let's sit down, hear them, weep with them, pray with them, do what we can to help in the situation and walk with them through it. That's sympathetic. Then he goes on and he gives a third word. It's uh, brotherly. This is Philadelphia, the, like the city of brotherly love, which if you've been to Philadelphia, it's not really the city of brotherly love. It's kind of a dangerous place to go, actually. But, but the word Philadelphia literally means brotherly love, the love of the brothers. This word speaks of the human affection that in the church we have towards each other. That's what Philadelphia is, or brotherly love. It's not agape love. It's not God's selfless putting other people before. It's just natural human affection. And I love seeing a church when, when people get together, they're actually glad to see each other. They're embracing. They're saying, man, how is your week? And we actually care when we ask these kind of questions. That's brotherly love. So part of, part of what, uh, what uh, is important about this is when people from the outside come and visit Godspeak, do they say a church 
that genuinely loves each other, that has affection for each other. The next word is kind-hearted. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down what this actually is. It's actually good-hearted. Now, I want to tell you something. The Bible never tells us to be nice. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, Parents are always telling their children, be nice. I actually don't like the word nice. Because there is no moral component in nice. The salesman who lies to you about everything is nice. Right? Oh, you've lost some weight. You look wonderful. Well, he's lying when he says that. Everything he says is a lie, but he's nice. He's got a smile on his face, and he says nice things to you. And, and the point, you know, people from every walk of life, from a prostitute to a whatever, they can be nice, right? But kind is different. Kind has the element of goodness in it. And when Peter says we need to be kind-hearted to each other, he's saying, I want you to be good-hearted or pure-hearted. And what this means is that your kindness is without any ulterior motive. When I walk into a car dealership and the salesman says, wow, you look great. And if you were sitting in this car, you'd look even better. I think he has ulterior motives in what he's saying, right? People who are kind-hearted or good-hearted, there's no ulterior motive. Their only desire is to demonstrate goodness and kindness to you. And that's what Peter does. He doesn't want us plastering on some phony smile and saying, how are you doing? Fine, good to see you, okay. He wants us to actually exercise goodness and kindness towards each other. There's one other thing that grew out of this word. Uh, in, in Greek language, the term goodness and courage were related. Our best uh, English word that comes close to that is virtue. Have you, and we don't use that anymore, but have you heard of people who had virtue there? They, were ten, they tended to be knights or warriors or great men and women. They were people who had the courage to do the right thing. And that courage grew out of a pure-heartedness. So when Peter says kind-hearted, he's wrapping all of these things together. He says, I want there to be a, a core goodness in you, a core purity in you. And I want that to result in treating people with kindness, with no ulterior motives. And then the final one is, is humble. In those days, the word humble was not a compliment. If I went up to a Roman of that day and said, wow, you're really humble. What you, I'll knock your block off. That, that was a cut. Because humble to them meant somebody who was worthless. And so they had no alternative but to act humble. So a servant, if, if you went and said, hey, give me my dinner. Yes, sir, yes, sir. And so they were acting humbly. They were serving you, Right. But they were serving you because they had no alternative. The New Testament turns the whole Roman ethical system on its ear when it says humility is when the powerful become servants. And think about what Jesus said. 
Jesus said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served. Every Roman would go, what? He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So when Peter says humble, he is asking us to really come down and understand God's heart. If you ever want to know a list of the worst sins to God, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 is it. It's an awesome passage. It says that there are six things that the Lord hates. Actually, as Solomon's writing, nah, I think there are seven. All right? The first is haughty eyes. Uh, in the Hebrew, that's a proud look. It's people who just walk around with that smugness that everybody owes them deference. It's just a, it's a disgusting thing, at least in the eyes of God. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises evil, wicked plans and feet that make haste to run evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. Here's the last one. And one who sows discord among the brothers. So all of the things that we've talked about, in a sense, are the opposite of what Peter has been saying for us, is that we need to have a sense of humility. So as we go on, humility towards God is when you submit to his authority. You say, God, in this situation, when I've been wronged by another person, I want to do this, but I'm going to trust you because I know you want to do something different. We rely on his wisdom. Rather than thinking you know the best way out of a situation, you trust God's wisdom to help you find the way out of the situation. Third, we rely on his power. In other words, rather than, than thinking, I can take care of this, God, I don't need you for this We learn to come to God every day. You guys, one of the things that has has changed my life in about the last five years is it finally has sunk into my thick skull that I can't go one day without the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so now my verse that I wake up with every morning, and I wish I could say I do this every morning, but I don't, I'm not, not as consistent as I'd like to be. But when I do, it makes a huge difference. I go to John 7, 37 through 39. And you should write that one down because it's a tremendously powerful guide as to how to pray to Jesus in the morning. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures say, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So what Jesus is saying is, are you thirsty? And this is not just one time for salvation. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, are you thirsty for the power of God to be flowing through you? Half of the time when I wake up, I'm just thinking, oh, I'm glad I got up. You know, I'm not even thinking about life or God or people or anything. I'm just trying to get out of bed. But Jesus says, look, today, Steve, take a minute. And come to me and drink from me. Drink in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so I've developed the habit of coming to Jesus with this prayer and saying to him, I am thirsty. I need you today. And I walk through all of the different things on my schedule. And I say, I've got this meeting. I've got this appointment. I've got this thing going on. Jesus, I need you and the power of your spirit to guide me 
through every appointment, and I list them specifically. You guys, when I do that, it makes such a difference in my day. Especially if I'm going through a difficult time where there's a difficult relationship that I need to navigate through. If I'm doing that with the power of the Holy Spirit, things turn out a lot better than if I'm doing that in my own strength. All right? So, humility towards God is the recognition of who we are and who He is. Humility towards each other means that we will surrender our preferences and even our rights for the sake of unity in the body of Christ. So, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Now, do you realize how radical that is? He's saying, don't do many things. He says, don't do anything from a heart of selfishness, which is for your own interest, or from a heart of empty conceit. In other words, to blow yourself up in people's perspective, you know, to make yourself look bigger. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So here's the five words. Harmonious, sympathetic. What was the third one? Brotherly. Brotherly. Yes. Kind-hearted and humble. Peter is saying, do you want to be the kind of person that God pours out his blessing on? This is how he wants you to be in your family. This is how he wants you to be with your husband or wife in the middle of your argument. See, that's, that's when it really stinks. When you have to, you know, you can't really flesh out and just start yelling at your spouse or at your kid. You actually have to be godly, yes, in your family when nobody else is looking. These are the five qualities he wants in your family, he wants them in your neighborhood, he wants them at your workplace, he wants them here in the church. In other words, and, and I want to share with you something I always tell couples who are going through difficult times. One thing you need to realize is you either will either win as a couple or you will lose as a couple. There's no win-lose in a relationship. You either win together or you lose together. And couples miss that so often. They're battling for power. They're battling for leverage. They're battling for position in the marriage and in the family. And so much grows out of that battle. So now, verse 9, he's going to get us to how this is actually going to look in real life. He says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. I want to give you a picture of an argument. It's like a fire that's going on between you. And so the husband throws a log on the fire with an insult. And the wife says, oh, yeah? And she throws a log on the fire. Now, if they're both throwing logs on the fire, what's going to happen to the fire? It's going to get bigger, right? Because you're both adding fuel to the fire. That's what Proverbs 15.1 is saying. It's saying a gentle answer turns away wrath. A gentle answer kind of calms down the fire, but a harsh response stirs up anger. 
and I, it, it just, I'll tell you, in the counseling we do, it just breaks my heart to see husband and wife wounding each other, hurting each other, and getting anger and angrier because of it. And Peter says, no, don't return evil for evil. If they've done evil for you, you don't return it back. Don't return insult for insult. If they've insulted you or hurt you or wounded you with their words, don't return that. In fact, Peter says, I want you to give a blessing. Now, I don't know if any of you ever saw the old movie Sister Act. Any of you see that with, uh, I think it was, I was going to say Goldie Hawn, but it was Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and at the end of the movie, she's looking at the criminal and she says, bless you. I don't quite think that's what God had in mind when he said return a blessing. The interesting thing about this word, the bl- a blessing, returning a blessing, it's not so much what you say to the person, but it's your desire for the person. Returning a blessing is desiring that God pour out his favor on that person. And, and returning a blessing might be saying something like, you know, obviously I hurt you and I'm sorry. And I'm, I'm praying that God is going to bring healing both to you and to our relationship. Rather than returning insult or wounding for wounding. You guys, do you realize how unnatural this is? Paul agrees by that. In Romans chapter 12, 17, he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether they're a friend or an enemy. And let's get real personal, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. That's not our call. Paul goes on to say, uh, oh, this is just a principle I want to share with you. You know, how, you know how when kids get in a fight, you, you separate them and you say, Billy, why did you hit Tommy? And he, what does he always say? He hit me first. And we never grow out of that. We grow up believing that if a, another person does something to me, that gives me the right to do it back to them. Which is, I guess, okay if you're four. Okay? But you guys, we need to grow out of that. And the principle that I want you to get is that the ungodliness of another towards you never makes it okay for you to return with an ungodly response to them. And you wouldn't believe it in marriage counseling. I get a pair of four-year-olds in there. Do you know what he said to me? He said, blah, 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 blah. And I go, whoa, he did? And he says, yeah, but, but she said this to me. And I always ask that. So, so that made it okay for you to say that to her? You know, he kind of choked. He can't even come to acknowledge that it wasn't okay for him to say that. But you guys realize that when you're in the heat of battle, of a relational battle, a verbal relational battle, God is holding you accountable for every word you say. Jesus said what's spoken in secret will be shouted from the housetops. I'm not sure I want that video of Steve Larson played when we 
stand before Jesus Christ. I hope he's got a good delete button there because there's a few things I'd like to have not shouted from the housetops in the judgment of Jesus Christ. Yes. Maybe we all have a few of those things, right? But the, the point that I'm making is your spouse is responsible for him or her. You are responsible for you. And so no matter what they say, Jesus is there whispering, hey, bless them. Bless them. How can you respond in a way that will strengthen them, that will encourage them, that will lift them up? And here's the principle that is so dynamite. And this is what I want you to remember about this. You can't change unless you break the cycle. Do you understand what I'm saying? The, the cycle of you do this to her, she does this to you, blah, blah, blah. And, you're, and it just keeps getting worse and worse. Somebody has to say, no. I'm going to respond in a godly way right now. I'm going to stop being angry with you. And I'll tell you, if you're really angry, you may need to say, you know what? I need about five minutes to go breathe and calm down. So that I can come back and we can talk in a matter that's going to please Jesus. Because that's actually pretty powerful to do that. Not to keep engaging in anger with each other. All right? So let's go on. Well, let me just, we're kind of ready to move on. But let me just share with you what Jesus had to say. He said, love your enemies. Think of the person that you can't stand more than anything else. Hopefully that person is not the one you're married to. But, you know, think of the person who you just, oh, you just love to never see them again. Jesus says love them. Not only love them, do good to them. Here again, he echoes Peter, or actually Peter echoes Jesus. He says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. This is not human, is it? This is not natural. But this is what Peter is calling us to. So Peter goes on in verse 9. Or let's, let's actually start for verse 10. And he's going to quote Psalm. He's going to quote the Psalms. And here's what he says. For the one who desires life, to love, and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 14. I'm going to read this to you in the New Living. I love how the New Living translates this. Does anyone want to live a life that is long and prosperous? Then keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Jesus echoed this in Matthew 5 when he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So Peter's desire is that we become people of peace. In our neighborhood, if there's a a dispute going on, we become the ones who try to bring healing. If there's a 
frustration in the church and, and one group of people don't like the other group of people or they're fighting over something, we're the ones that God wants to come in and make, help to make peace. Because that's what makes us characterized like God. Okay, so 1 Peter 3.10, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. And here's the promise of God. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I just want to share with you, most people I talk to who are going through difficult times never tie together that it may be because how they're, that it may be growing out of the fact of how they're treating other people. But I want you to understand that what God is saying is if you are responding to people as if you were a non-Christian, in other words, returning insult for insult, uh, you know, wound for wound, hurt for hurt, you're that kind of person who just goes tit for tat in every, every area of your life or even in key relationships of your life. God is going to turn his face away and you are going to be robbed of the experience of his blessings on a day-by-day basis. 1 Peter 3 ties together our relationship with people and our experience of God's blessing. And the thing that I'd love you to walk away from tonight would be to evaluate the relationships of your love of your life. Are you actively loving the people that God brings into your life? Are you actively seeking their welfare, their good? Not just being nice, remember. Okay. Biblical love is not saying have a nice day. Okay? Biblical love is actually putting yourself out to do kindness towards other people. 